0: Welcome to the Budgets and Brews podcast. In this week's episode, we'll interview JL Collins, author of the book, Simple Path to Wealth, Your Roadmap to Financial Independence and a Rich Free Life. In this episode, we'll discuss how everyone can retire a millionaire, why most people lose money in the stock market, why JL doesn't like investment advisors, and so much more. At the end of the episode, join us for Rich and Tony's Beer Review, where we act like beer connoisseurs, but in reality, we have no idea what we're talking about. Stay tuned and find out what beer's on tap.
1: What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Budgets and Brews podcast with your hosts, Rich and Tony, where we discuss, chat, and ramble about this week's finance topic. Our content ranges from personal finance, investing, getting out of debt, budgets, business, and beer. My name is Rich, and this week's hot topic is The Simple Path to Wealth with special guest and author J.L. Collins. His first job was selling fly swatters door to door and picking up empty pop bottles to turn in for two cent deposits. At eight years old, his first job was in an ice cream parlor, paying a dollar twenty five an hour. His other jobs he had as a busboy. Dishwasher, grocery bagger, mail clerk, landscaper. And moving into his formal employment, he was the investment officer, a publisher, senior manager, and senior executive. Throughout this, he was growing revenue and profitability, integrating acquisitions, launching new products, developing and implementing business plans, and creating market strategies. These opportunities led him to see and explore over 40 different countries. Since then, he has created a blog dedicated to his wife and daughter and has appeared on podcasts such as Bigger Pockets, The Mad. Scientist and earn and invest. He has presented at talks at Google and has written interviews with individuals such as Mr. Money Mustache. He's also the author of The Simple Path to Wealth. So without further ado, author J.L. Collins. Welcome.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here.
1: It is our honor to have you on the show. I'm super excited for this. And I was telling you before, uh, your book definitely has changed the way I think about finances and my overall uh, depiction on life. So thank you so much. I want to start off by talking, and we're going to sort of dissect your book a little bit, pull out a couple chapters in there and talk about the content which is inside there. And the first thing that it's a sort of powerful punch to me when I was reading it was the beginning. And this is the beginning, uh, number two, part of your book. It's the monk and the minister parable. And I was going to see if you can speak a little bit about this and how it resonates with you and your sort of your creation of writing that.
2: So that that was not only is that uh, in the very beginning of the book, it was the very first blog post I wrote or or published on uh, on my blog way back in 2011. Uh, the Monk and the Minister is a parable I came across, and it's a pretty short one. And in brief, uh, there these two childhood friends who meet after decades uh, into their adulthood. And over the years, one has become a wealthy, uh, prominent uh, minister to the king, and the other has become a very humble monk. And they're standing on the street, catching up with one another. and And the minister can't, help but notice that his friend the monk is in tattered clothing and is carrying a baking bowl and and what have you. And and at one point wanting to help the monk, the minister says, you know, if you could learn to cater to the king, you wouldn't have to live on rice and beans. To which the monk replies, if you could learn to live on rice and beans, you wouldn't have to cater to the king. And that's always struck with me. And I think all of us fall in somewhere on that spectrum. Uh I, I think I lean a little bit towards, I'm certainly not a monk, but I, I lean a little more towards that direction. And the key lesson, of course, is the less you need,
1: the freer you are. And I think that that is big in today's society because everyone's trying to better themselves. I relate to this because if you can sort of learn to live off of the necessities, and you can put some savings aside, you're going to be just okay. You don't need to be out there, you know, having the millions of dollars of So I, I, I resonate with that because that's sort of how I live my life.
2: Yeah, I, I'm kind of a fan of stoic philosophy that basically says you shouldn't be attached to anything, but at the same time, you should work hard and strive to take advantage of, of all of the the gifts you may have been blessed with. And uh, I think the two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, certainly anybody who... who Whatever talents they have, they should uh, work hard to develop them. And mm-hmm. if some of those talents lead to making large amounts of money, that's that's a fine and, and wonderful thing. It's just, I think, being aware that that, that alone is not the goal. And right. the most important thing you can buy with that money is your freedom.
1: And moving right into, now this is chapter one of the book, debt, the unacceptable burden. My question is, why were you opening the book with this, having debt in the first chapter? And do you think eliminating debt first is paramount in someone's journey to financial independence?
2: There's an interesting story behind why that that chapter exists. But I'll start by saying that you can't begin to build financial independence if you're dragging debt around like a ball and chain on your your ankle. I suppose you can begin, but you, you make it's like trying to run a marathon with that ball and chain. It should make your life a whole lot more more difficult. Originally, that chapter wasn't in the book. And it was my editor who insisted that it should be, that I should write a chapter about debt. And I was very reluctant because, candidly, I have never had debt. Uh, other than mortgages when I bought houses and even those I tended to pay off pretty quickly. I've never even had a car loan. So... Debt has never been an issue for me. It's never been a problem for me. And I, I said to Tim, I you know, I just I don't feel comfortable writing about something I don't have mm-hmm. experience with. Uh, he, as it happens, had struggles with debt, which is why he thought it was such an important thing. And we went mm-hmm. back and forth on it. And finally, I said to him, well, I'll tell you what, if you write an outline of what the chapter ought to look like, I will, I will write the chapter based on on that and that's exactly what we did, and uh, that's how the chapter came to be. It, it also uh, became a post on the blog, and it's one of the more popular ones in both cases. People You know, people relate to it because a lot of people do struggle with that.
1: And I think sort of what you were saying is you didn't really have that feeling about what is this debt sort of like because I never had it before. But I think in average America, everyone sort of experiences that. And I think it was great to sort of throw that in the beginning because when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's definitely intentional because you need to lift that burden before you can sort of start getting your mind right to sort of see other opportunities and whatnot in front of you. And, you know, Dave Ramsey, a big component of debt out there, right in his baby steps, like number two is get rid of all debt. Save for that emergency fund and then throw everything at there because once that's free, now you can sort of see what else is out there for you to sort of invest in to grow your wealth.
2: You know, it was interesting as I started writing the blog and the book evolved out of the blog, because I didn't have any experience with debt, my idea of starting at ground zero was at ground zero. You you had neither debt nor investment. And it, it, you know, took some learning on my part to realize that a lot of people are starting below water. And, you know, you have to, you have to overcome that. And I even, I even say at one point that, you know, debt's very hard for me to understand because it's so, has always been so repellent to me. It's like being covered with leeches, with blood sucking leeches. And what really is horrifying to me is how in our American culture, we kind of have this idea that carrying large amounts of debt is normal. It's like saying walking around covered with blood sucking leeches is normal and you shouldn't worry about it. In my world, you should take out your sharpest knife and scrape the little blood suckers off.
0: As graphic as that is, I mean, it can sometimes feel that way. Me personally, I've never uh, had a large amount of debts, but as we've talked about, you know, many Americans do. And it kind of seems like uh, going the traditional college route, it's almost, unless you have some inheritance or some wealth built prior to going to college. It's almost expected that you're going to have to take out big student loans and you're going to have this debt to repay. So um, that's something definitely most financial uh, professionals will advise on is taking care of that debt first before you start working on building those those asset columns and up and, and things of that nature. Yeah, here's the good news,
2: though. If if you are caring for anybody our listeners who are carrying a large amount of debt and you take it on and you start paying it off, that's going to obviously require that you divert part of your income into paying off that debt, which of course means you can't spend it. Um, And that's going to be a a pretty difficult adjustment for most people. And it's probably going to take months or maybe even years to, to blow out the debt doing that. That's all the bad news, I guess. But the good news is that if you do that, once the debt's gone, you now have this discipline of diverting money from spending, in this case, to debt the debt, you don't have the debt anymore. It's a short step to now diverting that money to investments and building your wealth wealth and buying your freedom. Yeah. So in in a way, it's if you have debt, it's a bad thing, but it can be a good training ground as you get out of debt for the discipline of diverting money in, into investments.
1: Maybe that uh, discipline can help you retire a millionaire. So can everyone retire a millionaire is the title of chapter three in your book and you answer the question by saying yes but it's never going to happen can you elaborate on that
2: well I, i think you kind of touched on it in the introduction of that question is that most people will never will never develop the discipline of uh putting aside money and to buy their their freedom but when you run the math uh and i don't have the math in front of me but that chapter and and it's also a uh On the blog is one of the stock series posts. I I walk through the math and it doesn't take that much money over, say, a 30-year period to achieve a million dollars. So the math absolutely works in favor of doing it. It's a very reachable goal, even on modest incomes. But, uh, you know, most people, regardless of their income, are never going to be financially independent. Right. Uh, sometimes, in large part, I think, because most people will never realize even that it's an option. They will have never heard of it. And then, for those who do hear that it's an option, it's still, you know, it takes some effort and it has to be a priority for you.
1: And over the long run, as you're mentioning and alluding to at 30 years, 40 years, you know, the earlier you start, the better. Yes, optimal time. But in chapter seven, the market always goes up. In this chapter, you talk about the market going up over a long period of time, as well as it being self-cleansing. And so can you explain what self-cleansing means? And then also to someone new to investing, what do you mean by the market always going up?
2: So, self-cleansing is a term that I coined, and I'm I'm very proud of it. When it takes a little bit of of explanation, I suppose, but I recommend buying index funds. And what an index fund is is simply a fund that buys every uh, stock, every equity uh, in a given index. So, for instance, the S and P 500 index. Tracks the 500 largest companies in, in the United States that are publicly traded. And that index buys proportionally all 500 of those companies. It doesn't try to predict which you're going to outperform or, or underperform. My preferred index is the total stock market index, and specifically VTSAX, which is a Vanguard fund that buys the total stock market. And that's about 3,600 companies what self cleansing means then is some of those companies are going to prosper and do well and that's what's going to drive your investment up that's what drives the market up and some are not not all companies succeed all companies have a have a life cycle just like humans do and even the successful ones eventually fade you know we you can go back to the nifty 50 in the late 60s early 70s and You know, you see companies like Xerox and Kodak and that were powerhouses at the time Mm -hmm. that that have sort of faded away. That will happen to all the companies today. But as that happens, if things get bad enough, they fall off the index. But new exciting companies that have been started come onto the index. And that's the self-cleansing that I'm talking about. And the good news in that is that while some of those companies that you own in the index will fail... Uh, they'll probably drop off the index before they go to zero, but they can drop pretty dramatically. They can never drop more than 100%. But the companies that are prospering can increase 100% or 200% or 5,000 or 10,000. So the upside is unlimited, whereas the downside is is very limited, and, and they get peeled off. That's one of the things that drives the market continually up. Now, let's be clear, that's not a smooth trajectory, The market is a wild and crazy ride. We've certainly seen that this year, where the market is back up to setting new highs now. And a few months ago, it was plummeting 35%. So it's a wild ride. But overall, trending, it continually goes up if you're investing for the long term. And that self-cleansing is part of how that happens. As long as the U.S. remains a viable capitalist economy, that will continue. And so you're really betting that the U.S. is going to continue to be that viable capitalist economy. And of course, there are people who don't believe that's going to happen, and then you don't want to follow my advice. You're probably building a bunker and stocking with canned goods.
1: When you said that in the book, that was my aha moment. When you sort of described what self-cleansing was, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. And I guess I sort of compared that to almost active management with mutual funds where they're trying to pick those stocks and project those companies that aren't going to do good and they might pull them quicker or they might put a company in there sooner. And it seems like with the index, it's almost like an, an algorithm. It's, it's automatically, it's self-cleansing. They're washing out the old companies that are doing poor and they're putting in those new ones. That's where you're saving some of that money where you're not paying that active manager to guess and pick and choose, but the market's going to do that naturally, it seems like.
2: Right. And you know, when you have an active manager, an active manager does exactly what you described and mm-hmm. you pay for that. Those fees, uh, they may seem modest uh, at one or 2%, but over time, those those are in a huge drag on, on your returns. If that wasn't bad enough, and of course, that means that it those fees have to be accounted for for the manager to outperform the market. And why hire one if they're not going to outperform the market? And the fact is that very, very few managers outperform the market, something like over a five year period, maybe. 15, 20% do. Mm-hmm. Over a 30 year period, it's less than 1%. It's yeah. statistically zero. People always point to Warren Buffett, you know, as the outlier, Peter Lynch. There are a handful of, of investors that have outperformed over time. But right. the reason we know their names is the same reason you know who Muhammad Ali, Ali is. I mean, mm-hmm. not everybody can get in a boxing ring and and do what a lead did and it's silly to think that as an investor you can get in the ring and do a Buffett or Peter Lynch have
1: done. What I love about that chapter is the f- chapter that follows it. So we just talked about the market always going up and maybe why it does that is because of the self cleansing. But now chapter eight is why most people lose money in the market. So <laughs> I don't understand it. Which one is it? So that, that's my question. Which one is it? that seems condescending is how is it always going up, but most people lose?
2: So Warren Buffett, actually, as there's there's some video clips out of Warren Buffett giving a great answer to that, that question. And uh, basically, in the interview, he, he, he says, you know, if you look at the last century, at the turn of the last century in 1900, the market stood at 66. It closed out that century in 1999 at 11,000 something. He said, that's an amazing run over over a century. How does anybody lose money in a market that does that? And the answer is they try to dance in and out. They try to time the market. They try to outsmart the market. And that is a loser's game for sure. Nobody can do that. Now, how do I know nobody can do that? That's a that's a pretty pretty bold claim. Well, the reason I'm confident that nobody can do that is that would be the ultimate superpower. If you could really reliably time the market, and I'm not just talking about guessing it correctly once or twice. I'm talking about reliably being able to time the market, you would be far richer than Warren Buffett and far more lionized. I mean, it would be the ultimate investing superpower. Uh, I actually did a, a series of posts a number of years ago inviting my readers on the blog to predict what the market was going to do in the coming year. And then at the end of the year, I'd report back and I would abuse them for having failed. <laughs> I'd give out awards for the people who came came closest. And it's, it's a sobering exercise. You know, earlier this year in March, I, you know, my Twitter and Facebook and blog comments were filled with people saying, you know, the market's gone down 30%, percent it's going down much, much further, COVID's made everything different, you know, this is so clear and, and I'm adjusting my investments accordingly. Well, of course, the market, as we know now, promptly turned around and went back up. I didn't know it was gonna do that at the time, but I also knew that nobody could predict it. And of course, now everybody's, not everybody, but large numbers of people are claiming that the market's gotten crazy and it's gone far beyond Anything reasonable, and it has to. It has to correct. Well, time will tell. Maybe they'll be right. There's a likelihood they won't be right. I mean, nobody, nobody knows what the market's going to do. Come Monday, it might set a record uh, run for the day, or it might be down forty percent. Short term, nobody can predict the market
1: we were just having the conversation before we started recording. And I was like, man, it's been on a streak. It's going up and up and up. I'm like, maybe I should. I'm like, no, the JL strategy, stay in it. I'm young. I got
0: years. And JL, like according to you, in your opinion, nothing really has changed. I mean, obviously the market took a huge dip and it's been a little bit more volatile since COVID. But I mean, investing in index funds, just staying the course is still your primary advice to, to people who are looking to invest. Absolutely, and
2: and as I say, as long as the U.S. remains a viable economy, it always it always will be. I I said at the beginning of COVID, I I'm not at all surprised that the market crashed with COVID. I certainly because the market does that periodically; it's a natural part of the process. I certainly never predicted that it would be a pandemic that caused that. And it's tragic that would trigger the market's plunge costing lives. But if you read through my my book or my blog, you know, I talk all the time about the fact you have to expect the market to correct, which is defined as a ten percent drop, to have bear markets, which is defined as a twenty plus percent drop, and to have crashes, which is you know, thirty, thirty-five, forty, fifty percent drops. These are normal. These are just part of the process. Uh, corrections obviously happen more often than crashes. But you know, it's it's like living in Cleveland, where where we all three of us used to live, and and being surprised when there's a blizzard. You know, I mean, winter in Cleveland, you're going to get blizzards. Mm-hmm. And do are they damaging at times? Of course. Are they difficult to deal with? Of course. Should they surprise you? No, it's the same thing with, with market drops. Just and when do they
1: come? Do they come in April? Do they come yeah, well, that's in true. October? <laughs> like You just never know. That's and that and that's true of the market deal. as well, yep.
2: right? But, but then, you, you can take advantage of them by reliably putting in money every month uh, from your earned income and then when the market plunges in fact i i say to young people who are just starting their investing journey uh, like my daughter the single best thing that could happen to you would be a huge market drop and for the market to stay down for a while because that would allow you to accumulate shares at a lower price now i don't recommend you wait for that because it may never come. The market doesn't do what's best for us ever other than relentlessly march up over time. Yeah. So I say invest whenever you can and as much as you can.
0: I'm really, really happy to hear you say that because that was something I was going to ask you to touch on. Um, I've been kind of advising like some of my younger cousins and family members to really start thinking about investing for their futures and, and kind of uh, looking into index funds and things like that and a lot of them have been a little bit resistant as in, uh, you know, when you invest in the stock market, it's really risky, like you're going to lose money. It's really, I mean, based on the advice you've given, it's really about consistency, right? You take a, a percentage or a chunk of your income. If you put that towards the market over a long period of time, uh, you're almost always guaranteed that the market's going to go up and you're you're going to, be able to build that wealth more efficiently than you would with with some other options as
2: long as you tolerate the volatility and don't panic and sell when it when it when the blizzards come right Mm -hmm. uh yeah absolutely and the other thing is that the younger you start the more years you have for compounding to work for you compounding is one of the magic forces in the universe it's it's incredible and that's that's really how wealth is is built is over time if you start Investing the moment you come out of college or the moment you start working at whatever your job is, and you just dedicate, as I did when I was young, in my case, 50% of my income went to buying my freedom. Uh, and then you live on the other 50%. You never have to worry about rolling back your lifestyle. It's a lot easier. The other point that I'd like to make is. This is not a process that's an on and off switch. It's not like at one point you're you're not financially independent, the next you are. Every step you take makes you financially stronger, makes you a little bit freer. Uh, I have a term called having FU money, which isn't having enough money to never work again, but it's enough money to make bolder decisions than you might otherwise make. I I think sometimes people are hesitant to start this journey because it seems like a long journey to get from here to full financial independence. And it can be. Every step of the journey, you get a little bit stronger. And that's kind of the point. So the benefits start almost immediately.
1: You get a little bit Uh, stronger and also wiser and smarter too. And Tony, you opened this up with you tried to help your family and your nephews and explain to them a little bit about investing into index fund, into the stock market, and they were hesitant at first. And I would say you probably were the same way as well. And I remember it when you wanted to get into the stocks because that was exciting and that was awesome. And I remember talking to you and I said, Hey, listen, it is, that's great. But sometimes it's the simple path to wealth, pun intended, um, that you can take that can, it's going to get you there too. And I started talking to you about the index funds and you're utilizing your retirement accounts and the matches and everything like that. But I think the biggest thing is, also to educate yourself because no one is going to yeah. buy into something if they don't know what it's about. And so it's start off with listening to these podcasts, reading blogs, educating yourself by getting books. That way you can make informed decisions and you know what you're getting into. Because if someone's selling you a product and they said, hey, buy this product because I said so, you're just not going to do it. But if you understood right. what that product was, okay, now I'll go ahead and do this because I'm more informed. And so I think anyone out there Making sure they educate themselves first before they get into that.
2: I would say absolutely. Before anybody invests, you should you should educate yourself. I the questions I get that I like least are, are questions along the lines of "I have ten thousand dollars. What should I do with it?" And you know my answer is always going to be, "Well, you know, read my blog and read other things, and then you decide you decide what to do with it." One of the criticisms of our educational system is that we don't teach kids this but we also have to teach them the right things about it and this goes to i think tony's excitement about investing in stocks when he first comes across it on the rare occasions when high schools teach anything they tend to to bring a broker in who is is obviously there to tout their own business and he comes in and they they do something like a stock picking contest Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. well stock picking is is the road to losing money in in the market I mean it's exactly the wrong lesson to teach about stocks it's the lesson that will make Wall Street the most amount of money if you can educate people and convince them to go out and buy individual stocks and try to trade in and out of them, as Warren Buffett said, try to dance in and out of the market. And that's exciting. And when people say, oh, the stock market's just gambling, that kind of of investing, and I have air quotes around that word now, in the market is gambling, you know, by trying to buy individual stocks. But that's not really investing. That's just making money in fees and commissions for, for Wall Street. You know, investing is is buying something that will reliably grow over the decades for you that you don't have to pay attention to.
1: So moving into chapter 23, why I don't like investment advisors. And we talked a little bit about this before, but now maybe go into a little bit of detail. My question is why, because a lot of times what we're told I feel like when we're in school or when we're starting to get involved in investments is, oh, go talk to a financial advisor. And there's so many of them. You know, we are getting marketed all these different companies, whether it's there's Schwab, there is Vanguard, there is Edward Jones, there's JP Morgan. The banks have advisors there. I would just feel like if I didn't know anything about this industry, well, that's the route to go is go talk to somebody and, you know, they're in it. So why don't you like them?
2: there are a lot of problems with with investment advisors let's start with the with the idea that rich just as you were describing it it's a very confusing term i mean it, it there are lots of people who claim to be investment advisors from all different directions and some of them are no more than insurance salesmen trying to sell you whole life insurance policies which are probably not something anybody should bother with all investment advisors are put in awkward position because what's best for them is not necessarily or even commonly what's best for the client. There are certainly honorable investment advisors out there. It's just how do you find them? How do you find the few that that meet their criteria? And even if you find one who's knowledgeable and Honorable, Again, there's always a conflict of interest. Let me give you a simple example. Suppose you're sitting down with your investment advisor. I say, Tony, um, you know, I'm thinking about paying off my mortgage. You know, you're the professional here. What do you think I ought to do? Well, that's an interesting question, and there's no simple answer to it, and it's very situationally driven. So that might be a great question put in front of an advisor, other than the fact that if the advisor tells you to pay it off, they're hurting themselves. Because if you owe $100,000 on that mortgage, you're going to have to take $100,000 that your advisor is currently managing, making a an advisory fee on, and give it to the bank to pay off the mortgage. That means if your advisor tells you to do that, that advisor is also telling you to do something that is hurting them. And so how objective can they be and especially when it's a question like that where maybe it could go either way it takes a saint to put somebody else's needs in front of their own consistently and financial services is not a field that typically attracts saints Uh, that's just a couple of the reasons I'm uncomfortable with them. The other thing I would say is that by the time you know enough to find the right investment advisor, somebody who's knowledgeable and ethical, by the time you've educated yourself enough to be able to do that, you might just as well educate yourself enough to do it on your own because effective investing really is the soul of simplicity. Now, why doesn't it feel that way? Well, it doesn't feel that way because Wall Street intentionally goes out of its way to make it seem very complex. Mm-hmm. Wall Street, in fact, creates lots of enormously complex products, uh, lots of enormously complex life insurance. So the insurance company does it. Why do they do that? Well. The more complex it is, the more fees they can charge, and the more they can make you feel incompetent in handling it your own, and that drives you into their into their waiting arms. But the truth is that we don't need any of that stuff. Uh, I liken it to, if you imagined, a huge banquet table that was filled with every kind of exotic delicacy you could possibly imagine that were incredibly complex to prepare and and only experts could do it and in one tiny corner of that table were the basic healthy foods the fruits and vegetables and what have you that your body really needs and thrives best on well you could put your arm on that banquet table and sweep other other than that tiny corner of healthy stuff all onto the floor because you don't need it. It's the same thing with investments. You have this huge table filled with all kinds of options. And in a tiny corner, they're low cost, broad based index funds. And that's really all you need.
1: The other things that you mention in your book, too, are some advisors are based off commission. Some mm-hmm. have hourly fees that you have to pay them. Some are just fee based. There's the asset under management model you talk about. And then there's right. also a combination of both. So there's so many different ways that the advisors do make their money and you really don't know that. There's nothing when you're going to a website that says, this is how we are, unless you start doing that digging and you start asking those questions. And then there's a whole difference between what's who is a fiduciary, who's not a fiduciary, who has something that has something similar to what a fiduciary is supposed to be, but they're just not trying to give you that straight answer that they're not, but they'll show you other certifications. And so it is confusing. So I think that the best thing, and we talked about this before, is to educate yourself. In my opinion, I think that financial advisors play a place somewhere. And for maybe someone who if they don't have the time, sure, You know there are complexities with life insurance and different pensions and 401ks that if you don't have the time, that could be a a valid option. Um, But for somebody who wants to make the most out of their money, I don't think it's a necessity. And I think there are other easy ways to do if you spend the time just a little bit to just educate yourself in the field
2: You know, I would I would agree with what you said with a caveat, though, that, you know, again, it it takes a certain amount of knowledge and expertise to be able to find a good investor. And there are good investors out there. By the time you go to the effort to be prepared to to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, well and effectively, you know, you could have, you could have advanced your own knowledge of investing. So real quickly, uh, if you're going to use an investor and there are an, a, an advisor rather, and there are good ones out there, you want a fiduciary for sure. And these are questions you should ask anybody you're considering, you know, are you a fiduciary? And the right answer to that question is yes. The fee models are something that you ought to know and understand. And as you mentioned, basically there are three, some charge a, a percentage of assets. That's under management. So if you put a million dollars with an advisor, they'll charge you a percent or two a year uh, to manage that. That, by the way, is a huge drag on your investments. But, you know, they do have to be paid. The other model is commission. You know, they don't charge you a fee on, on the assets under management, but they charge you a commission to buy or sell the investments that they recommend. Of course, that has conflict of interest problems all over it because clearly, and insurance people are maybe the worst offenders here, clearly they're going to be steering you into the highest commission, highest expense kinds of options. That's what's best for them. Um, there's sometimes, as you alluded to, there's combination of those two things. The third one is fee-based, where they simply, like a doctor or a lawyer, they charge you an hourly fee for their advice. That's the one you want to look for, in my opinion, so you want a fiduciary that's charging a fee. Now, here's a great irony, and investment advisors, when you talk to them, and I've had the occasion to talk to quite a few of them, say, you know, customers don't like the fee-based arrangement because that means they have to write a check that they actually see. If I have a percentage of assets under management, that might be a much larger amount of money going from their pocket into mine, but they don't see it because it happens before they see their returns. If I'm making money on commissions, they don't see that, at least not as clearly. And so the great irony is the two that are more expensive are more palatable to most people because it's not as obvious. So if you want good advice, you should be willing to pay for it. So that's how I would approach an investment advisor, were I going to engage
0: with that's that's something really interesting that you pointed out there is that you know many people when they perceive the fact that they have to write a check or when they go to see a financial advisor and they, and they know that they have to pay for that uh you know to physically make the transaction themselves um it's kind of like the same thing with saving too you know and that's what we we discussed this in one of our other podcast episodes too but like if you're looking to save and you're having a hard time doing so, set up those direct withdrawals, the direct ACH transfers, the second you, you know, on your paycheck date. So when you get paid, your your saving proportion is automatically going into that account. You don't really see it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to remember to do it. And it seems like it kind of makes those things easier to do. Uh, for whatever reason, I agree with you 100%. It's just something in human nature when you have to physically do it or when you have to see it, it makes it harder.
1: One question I wanted to ask you specifically. And you do cover this in your book, in chapter 26, Why I Don't Like Dollar Cost Averaging. I think Hmm. that a lot of advisors, a lot of financial gurus, and I read it all the time, I hear it on podcasts, especially when they're talking about automating your finances, is to dollar cost average and why that that's important. I want to hear from you, what is your take on that and how come you don't like that? And then also if you could just briefly explain what dollar cost averaging is.
2: Right. So that's the place to start is we is a little bit with definition, right? Mm-hmm. So when I say I don't like dollar cost averaging, I'm referring to how to invest a lump sum that you come into. So you have an inheritance, you sell up an, an asset of some sort. You you saved a chunk of money in a savings account and how 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 to deploy that that's a scenario where i don't like dollar cost averaging the scenario that i was just talking about with tony where you automate your investments is a form of dollar cost averaging right every month you're taking a portion of your uh, income of whatever you earn and you're investing it That is, I suppose, by definition, dollar cost averaging. I'm very much in favor of that, but you can't do anything else because obviously you can't invest that money before you earn it. So by definition, you have to invest it incrementally over time. And I suppose you could reasonably call that dollar cost averaging. I don't think of it that way because dollar cost averaging, in my mind, and when I say I don't like it, is how to deploy that lump sum. So why don't I like it? Well, the market on average goes up 75% of the time, goes down 25% of the time. Obviously it doesn't do that reliably, but three out of four years, the market will go up and and one out of four years, it will go down. Again, not reliably. It can go up many more years than three in a row and, and it can be down more than one year at a time. But nevertheless, that's the average. So at any given moment, if you're thinking about investing, you have a 75% chance that the market will go up from where you are and a 25% chance that it will go down. Now, when you dollar cost average a lump sum, it only works to your advantage in one way. And that's if the market goes down. Because then each time you invest, you're buying more shares for that money. But there's only a 25% chance that that's going to happen. More commonly, the market will either stay flat or go up. If it stays flat, that just means you've delayed getting the benefit of being invested. If it goes up, it means every every month or whatever the time period is, you're paying more for those shares. So the odds are against you benefiting from dollar cost averaging over that period of time. The reason people are drawn to dollar cost averaging is fear, and the fear is, I have $100,000 I've saved, it was difficult for me to to save that money, it was a long process, I don't wanna lose it. I'm afraid that if I put it in the market today, tomorrow will be the day that it drops 40%. No question, that's possible. Probably unlikely, but possible, and that no question would make for a really bad day. But understand this: two things. One is that let's suppose you take, let's call it one hundred twenty thousand dollars to make the math easier. Sure. You take your one hundred twenty thousand, you say, "I'm gonna, I don't, I don't want to drop it all today because tomorrow it might drop forty percent. I'm gonna put it in ten thousand a month over the next twelve months." And let's suppose you do that, and a month twelve you. You send in that final check and you kind of brush off your hands and say, job done. And the day after that is the day it drops 40%. You haven't really avoided the risk. You've only delayed it. The second thing to think about is anytime you're invested, you're always at risk of tomorrow being the day that it will drop 40%. And just as we talked about with blizzards in Cleveland, someday that will happen because that does happen. That's something you just have to to live with. So dollar cost averaging will will likely mean you're going to pay more for those shares getting in. And it really doesn't defend you from from the risk you're trying to avoid. That's why I don't like it. Now, having said all that, I realize that psychology plays a role. That psychologically, it can be very difficult to take that 120000 and put it in place all at once. And if the only way you can get yourself invested is to dollar cost average your way in, long as you understand
0: that you're probably doing something that mathematically is gonna work against you, then you know, you have to do what you have to do. And and JL, one thing that you've done that a lot of people cannot do is it seems like you've taken the emotional aspect out of it completely. Because I don't think if I had a hundred thousand dollars, I could put it all right into index funds. Like that that just seems so hard to do. And I would much rather break that down to five or ten thousand dollars a month going in. It just feels, from a psychological standpoint, even though the numbers, it makes no sense, from a psychological standpoint, it makes me feel more safe. As I said earlier
2: in our conversation, when it comes to investing, emotions are your enemy. Emotions are what you make you panic and sell when the market's down. You know, or emotions are what make you panic and sell when the market is up and you're afraid it's going to drop. And as our friend Warren Buffett pointed out, you know, the last century, the market went from 66 to 11,500 or something. And people still lost money in it because they tried to dance in and out. That's the emotional thing. So the more you can drive emotion out of your investing decisions, the better off you are. Another thing, as long as I'm on this particular soapbox sure. uh, that I cringe at is when people say, "Well, you know, I, I still want to stock pick because it's fun. So I'm gonna I'm gonna set 10% of my I'll, I'll put 90% of my money in investments in in indexes like you tell me I should JL, but I still want to play, so I'm gonna take 10% and play. To me, investing is not playtime. You know, there are other ways to play. Investing is, is serious stuff. You shouldn't invest to entertain yourself. You should invest to make money. I, it seems to me that if you agree with me, the optimal way to make money investing is index funds, then why would you not do that with 100% of your money? Uh, and on the other hand, if you disagree with me and you think you can pick individual stocks, then why would you screw around with index funds? I mean, I think right. you're wrong about that. I think you're taking a huge risk. And you won't know, by the way, until 20, 30 years from now, sure. whether you're right about that. If that's really what you believe, then then you should be picking Stocks, but this idea of taking a portion to play—you know—I don't know—take yeah. yeah. your grand okay. and go to Las Vegas. And
1: that's what fun. I was going to say. I wonder if the odds are better just playing uh, the roulette wheel once a month or something like that, uh, better yeah. than picking the, the winning stocks. But we definitely covered a lot of information right here. Yes. And it's so beneficial to anyone who has made it this far Listen to this podcast. And I encourage you, there is so much more in the book. We just cherry picked a handful of chapters. We stopped at 26 and I think there's like 30 something, 32 or 33. I, I encourage you, I will link the book to the show notes. We are not affiliated anyway. We don't make money off this. It's just something to, to educate yourself. And once again, it is the simple path to wealth. It's the simplest way I feel that I've learned to start investing and taking that leap into that world. So thank you so much, Dale. And is there anything else that you want to add that we haven't covered or you want to talk about?
2: Oh, I tell you, I mean, as you say, we covered a lot of ground. And there's nothing specific that I can think of, Rich. But it's it's been a lot of fun chatting with with you and with you, Tony. And, and hopefully uh, your listeners enjoy it as much as I have uh, hanging out with you. Thanks so much. We well, really yeah, appreciate it. Thank you very it.
1: much for being on. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for the invitation. It was fun.
1: Now let's splash right into Rich and Tony's b review. Don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook and find the link to our Budgets & Brews website where our
0: beer reviews will be available. Also on our Facebook page, we give away Budgets & Brews apparel every month, so don't miss a chance to win some free gear.
1: Once again, this means nothing since we do not know what we're doing. Please use our lack of knowledge for your entertainment.
0: All right, and for this week's beer, we'll be reviewing the Sam Adams Oktoberfest. Remember, we use a scale of 1 to 100, 1 being the worst beer we've ever tasted, and 100 being the best. Let's see. The
1: Sam Adams Oktoberfest, it comes in a nice bottle.
0: Uh, it's got good. a nice
1: orange, I guess like it's an orangey logo on it. it just says Oktoberfest with uh, Mr. Adams raising a a brew uh, to us. Yeah. So let's, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and jump right into so the pour and head retention. So this is Back out of 15.
0: In. Cheers. All right, here we go. Remember, 45 degree angle with the pour. Mm. So you want to get all that head? Nice, good pour here. I'm having oh, trouble getting my I think
1: this there. is the first time I've ever had a good head. Now oh, yeah. the audience can't see this, good. but um, it, it actually foamed. It actually foamed the top. Not too much. This is actually perfect. It wasn't a lot. Uh, it's rescinding a little bit. It, the retention looks great for me. Um, I'm going to give it out of, out of my 15. It wasn't overwhelming. Uh, 13. All right.
0: Nice. Uh, my pour was pretty good. Um, I, think I, <laughs> I think I, I think I gave too much of a splash there because I have like half beer, half foam. But the foam is staying there; it's not going away. So mm. the foam retention looks really good. I think if I would have poured it better, it would have been uh, a better experience. I'm gonna give it a 12 out of 15.
1: Okay, and the appearance and color, and this is out of 10. This looks del- I don't know delicious. We're not even on taste, but it's a malty brownish, but a clear brown. Like I can see through it. Um, It's just the perfect type of brown to the eye. Uh, I love it, a golden brown. For me, out of 10, I'm giving this an eight.
0: And yeah, I agree as well. When I hold it up to the light, it almost gives off like a little bit of a red tint, but it has like a very clear look to it. Um, got a lot of bubbly action coming up from the bottom. So it definitely looks appetizing. And that head retention is looking good. So I can't wait to try this. I'm going yeah. to give it a nine out of 10.
1: If I was in colonial days, this is what I picture a beer when I'm up at the bar and they <laughs> throw me one. Like, this is it. So the smell. Okay, this is out of 20. Get a waft.
0: Ooh. Okay.
1: All right. So it smells like a typical beer. I don't. Yeah think of anything octobery or acorns or leaves or anything like that it just smells like a strong decent beer and um not not overpowering strong but just like a solid beer nothing too crazy so i'm gonna go 15 15 out of 20 for me
0: all right 15 for the smell for me i i don't know if it's because i didn't chill my mug this month but when i smell it it smells like beer uh nothing special at all i it's not it's not a very bold smell so you kind of have to like try to find it uh i'm gonna give it a 10 out of 20. not, not super impressed
1: okay and now our favorite part is yes. the taste, and this is out of 30. let's go get in there rich let me know what you think big old gulp mm-hmm. savor that taste oh that's good oh yeah that, that makes nice. a good brew it is not it is not like strong or powerful or like it tingles the throat it's super super smooth it's cold. This now does taste a little Octobery.
0: Yeah, for me, um, it definitely feels like a deep flavor, kind of like a multi-robust. Yes. Very smooth, and like this is a beer I could slam if I was like at an Oktoberfest get together or something. Yeah. But very good. Very I taste drinkable. the malt.
1: I taste like the, the sort of like the, the malt yeah, or whatever yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah, but it's is. so
0: smooth. It's not like normally I don't like those malt. beers. Not overpowering, beers, but yeah, not definitely overpowering. not overpowering. Well, you give it yeah. out a thirty, Rich? Oh
1: man, I love this. Uh, Twenty, I'm giving it a twenty-seven, a twenty-seven. Ooh, that's a high one. We did a five point three percent alcohol. I think we should yeah. also uh, mention yeah, that yeah, too. five point three.
0: No, not. You know, that's about average, isn't it? But it doesn't it's taste limited. like it at all. Like,
1: it's super, super smooth. So,
0: so for my taste, I really like this beer. I think it's very drinkable. Um, I'm going to give it a 23 out of 30.
1: And now we're going with the aftertaste, and this is out of the 25. The aftertaste, for me, it, it, it hung around for a little bit, and then it sort of just danced away. But it wasn't bad. It was strong. It wasn't overpowerful. It was just a pleasant. It The aftertaste tastes exactly like the initial taste. It wasn't yeah. different. It didn't change. It just lingered for a little bit and like i like the taste so for me out of 25 i'm giving it a 23.
0: okay nice um for the f taste for me it's not super super um bold or anything like that it kind of tastes like the beer like you said but it does leave it like a little tingly on the tongue i think it's very pleasant i'm gonna give it a 20 out of 25. all right and for the overall ranking out of 100 Mine totals up to 86. And I give the Sam Adams Oktoberfest a solid 74. Good beer.
1: And that wraps up episode number 14. And if you enjoyed listening, we asked you to give it a thumbs up, subscribe, or follow. And oh yeah, please share this episode with friends and family if you found it beneficial. Also, don't forget to leave a review and comment on what topics you want us to talk about for the upcoming weeks. That does it. See ya.